Today on the show, we're talking about migration. First, we dip into the archive for a story from Jesse Dukes. In the 50s and 60s, thousands of white Southerners came to Chicago in search of jobs and a better life. And most of them ended up in Uptown. It sounds terrible now, but they still call it that. You know, they used to call Uptown uh, hillbilly heaven. Then we'll look at the Great Migration, when hundreds of thousands of black Southerners moved to Chicago, and white homeowners had a powerful, completely legal tool to keep black people out of their neighborhoods. It would say phrases like, no part of said premises shall be conveyed, leased, or sold to any Negro or Negroes. WBEZ's Natalie Moore tells us about her investigation into the history of racially restrictive deeds and covenants, and how you can help. I'm Stephen Jackson, this is Curious City, and all of that is coming up next. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Jesse Dukes, audio producer, and I've got a story about a group of people moving to Chicago in search of a better life. Now, we may be familiar with the Chicago migration stories involving the Polish, the Irish, and Latinos. And of course, the migration of black Southerners to the city was huge, half a million between 1916 and 1970. But there were also tens of thousands of white Southerners who came to Chicago, many from the Appalachian region. The biggest concentration was in Uptown, a north side neighborhood on the lake, just north of Irving Park. We recently got a question about them. It's from Matthew Bird, a college student in Iowa who grew up here. I was wondering why so many migrants from Appalachia came to the Uptown neighborhood in the 50s and 60s, and I want to know why so many of them decided to go back home, down back south. The question is personal. Matthew's grandparents were Appalachian migrants. They came here from West Virginia in the 60s. And I always asked them why they all came to Uptown, and they could never give me a definitive answer. They are just like, oh, we came because we had a friend or what. I, I wanted to know why, like, they all came to that neighborhood. Why didn't they come to, I don't know, Bridgeport? So Curious City put me, a recent Southern migrant myself, on the case. And we're going to break Matthew's question down into its elements. Why did so many Southerners come to Chicago? Why Uptown? And why did so many leave? Or did they leave? Along the way, we'll talk to scholars and activists, and we'll hear from Matthew's grandparents. You probably can guess why so many people came to Chicago. And in fact, Matthew could have gotten this one from his grandfather. Well, I had uh, relatives there. My wife's mother and father were there. They had offered to get me a job if I'd come up there. Glenn Lambert says when he graduated high school in West Virginia in 1965, he knew what his options were. Either go to work in a coal mine or work for minimum wage. That's my only choices I really had there. There's nothing but coal mines. So it makes sense that Matthew Bird's grandfather would come north. But his was really the first generation to make that trip, even though the economy of Appalachia had been poor since well before the Civil War. So why didn't Southerners come north before that? 
Chad Berry is a historian who studied the southern white migrations of the 20th century. He says until the 1920s, most big industrial employers in northern cities like Chicago and Detroit hired immigrants from overseas. But after World War I, the U.S. massively restricted immigration from other countries. So big business started looking domestically. They looked in three places, white, blacks, and domestic-born Latino people. At this point, some Southerners, white and black, did start migrating, but it was just a trickle, and the Great Depression put that on pause. And then after World War II, this amazing demand for manufacturing. Chicago was a real magnet for workers, just as Detroit and Indianapolis and Cleveland and other countless places were in the Midwest. By the 1960s, there were an estimated 30,000 white Southerners in Uptown, and they kept coming. Migrants spoke of being able to leave a job and walk across the street and get another one. This is Roger Guy, a sociologist who interviewed Southerners in Uptown in the 1990s. Now we're talking about light industrial for example, Polaroid and Zenith, and when they were just starting to produce, let's say, the, what was that camera, the Swinger? Yep, the Swinger. Southerners also worked in carpentry shops, candy factories. When Matthew's grandfather showed up in 1969, there were still jobs. I came to Chicago on Sunday. I went to uh, S&C Electric Company on Monday morning, and I went to work Monday night on the night shift. So, yeah, Southerners came for the abundant jobs. But Matthew also wanted to know why Uptown specifically. Roger Guy says everybody told him the same thing Matthew's grandparents said. Everyone that you'd ask, they'd say, well, I had Ken up there. I had Ken folk. I had a cousin. I had a sister. Sure, makes sense. But somebody had to be the first to say, maybe we'll rent a place in Uptown. And we don't know who that was or even when exactly. But it is worth looking at what Uptown was before the 1950s. In the 1920s, Uptown emerged as sort of a center district of entertainment with the Aragon Ballroom and the places like the Uptown Theater. It was full of young professionals and swanky housing. Think The Great Gatsby, but set in the Middle West. But during the Depression, it went into a decline. The fancy people left, the nightlife got seedy, landlords couldn't find wealthy clients for their grand, beautiful apartments, they deferred maintenance to save money. You just had a deterioration of housing stock, coupled with the desire to still make them profitable, and that led to them being divided and subdivided again. So that by the late 1940s, you got a lot of tiny, cheap apartments, which was perfect for Southerners with jobs near the north side and not a lot of cash. By the 1960s, Uptown had a nickname. It sounds terrible now, but they still call it that. You know, they used to call Uptown uh, Hillbilly Heaven. This is Linda Lambert, Matthew's grandmother. Her family came to Chicago in 1965 after her father was injured in the coal mines. We kind of got a little bit of a shock when we moved to Uptown because there, there were many, many Southern people there. But they weren't the Southern people that, like, we were used to being around. They were a little bit rough around the edges. <laughs> You know, like if I would get ready to go to the store or something, my dad would watch me walk down the block because somebody would be whistling at me or something. And, you know, it was kind of upsetting. It was kind of scary a little bit. Uptown still had a nightlife, but now it was country music in the bars. Many of the Southerners who came were that sort of young single men you might find at an oil boom town, you know, looking to work for a few weeks and then party. Authorities are reluctant to point a finger at any one segment of the population or nationality group, but they agree that the southern hillbilly migrants 
who have descended on Chicago like a plague of locusts in the last few years. This is from a series in the Chicago Tribune in the 50s. The first article was called Girl Reporter Visits Jungles of Hillbillies. And it was full of just nonsense like this. They get married one day, unmarried the next, and in the confusion of common law marriages, many children never know who their parents are, and nobody cares. The Southerners did have a bad reputation, and I'm sure they still do in some areas. I don't think it's true. I think it's just like any other culture. You know, it's you got your good, you got your bad, you know. But there was a lot of poverty. That is true. But a lot of people lived there only until they could do better. You know, that was just a stop in the road. Uptown went from Jazz Age Fancy District to, quote, hillbilly heaven, and then to something else. And Matthew's still wondering what happened to the Southerners during that last transition, because they're not in Uptown. That last phase began in the late 1960s, as the abundant jobs started vanishing. Uptown's rough reputation got rougher, and the city and developers pushed for urban renewal. A former alderman there, Helen Schiller, remembers Uptown in the 70s and 80s. The city's policy generally, on the north side at least, was to create public works projects in specific communities where they wanted to remove people, basically. The developers and city officials said the development was necessary to revitalize the neighborhood, and that if people got displaced, that would be unfortunate, but, well... Sociologist Roger Guy says even if they didn't actively target the poor, the poor usually lost out. Uptown became contested space. One advocacy group proposed this, well, utopian mixed-use development called Hank Williams Village. They named it after the country singer. It would have an employment agency, a pharmacy, and affordable housing. It was one of several attempts to plan for development that would also accommodate the poor, including white Southerners. But that wasn't what was happening. A handful of developers were redefining the community in real estate terms and claiming parts of it. They had deep pockets and bought up large tracts of family housing, kicked people out wholesale, and then tripled and sometimes even quadrupled the rent. That's when, by many accounts, Southerners were priced out of Uptown and left Chicago altogether. Some went back south to the relatively bleak prospects of coal towns. Some looked for jobs in other industrial cities, like Detroit or Cleveland. And of course, some had left Uptown years before. Matthew's grandparents, the Lamberts, were shrewd, hardworking. But, and I think they'd agree with this, they were lucky, too. Glenn's job at SNC was stable and paid well. Linda worked, too. That allowed them to move to a shady street in Ravenswood, a nearby Northside neighborhood, raise kids, and eventually retire to Kentucky. And historian Chad Berry says there were a lot of people like that. People who did find the economic dream they were looking for often moved on. And when they moved on, they might have bought a little brick, tiny house in the suburbs. On one side was a Polish-American family. On the other side might have been a Lithuanian-American family. And right in the middle there was a Southern or Appalachian family. Matthew and I take a visit to Truman College, which took out several blocks of housing when it was built and displaced thousands of Southerners. But it helped Southern families, too. Exactly. My my mom uh, got a nursing degree from Truman College, and that's one of the reasons I can go to college because of that. The campus is green and airy, and from the top floor of the parking deck, you can look out on the busy uptown streets and imagine how it once looked. When you're up here and you're looking at it and you're seeing all these people, 
Like, it's a really beautiful thing. And the fact that people from, like, a part of the nation that was very kind of poor and, and kind of isolated came up here and made a life for themselves and then made a life for their children. It, that's the hope of the city. It's not, it's not just their story. It's, like, Chicago's story. But he also feels that for the people who were pushed out of Uptown, Chicago let them down. There's success and there's failure. And I think the failure means that the next time a large group of people from like a, a, a part of the country or part of the world that's kind of maligned comes here, just, just do by them better than we did by, you know, the people from Appalachia or the people from Poland or Africa or Vietnam, to, to do better by them. That story was originally broadcast in 2015 and reported by Jesse Dukes. Since then, question asker Matthew Bird has graduated with a degree in library science and moved to Rogers Park. And his grandparents are doing well. Matthew tells us his papa just celebrated his 74th birthday, and they're both fully vaccinated and enjoying retirement in Grand Rivers, Kentucky. Coming up next a conversation with Natalie Moore about Chicago's history of housing segregation and how you can help WBEZ investigate. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. When black Southerners moved to Chicago during the Great Migration, many white homeowners had a legal way to block the flow of black residents to their neighborhoods, racially restrictive deeds and covenants. This was a powerful tool to enforce segregation in Chicago and the surrounding area, segregation that we're still living with today, decades after restrictive covenants were banned. WBEZ's Natalie Moore is looking into this history, and she joins me now to talk about her investigation and how you can help. Hey, Natalie. Hey, Stephen. So tell me a little bit more about this project. What exactly are you investigating? We want to dig into this history of Chicago housing that was racist against Black people as well as other people of color. Um, From 1916 until 1948, there was a tool known as racially restrictive deeds or racially restrictive covenants. And these legally binding documents were attached to parcels of land, subdivisions, homes preventing the sale, transfer, or rental of property to anyone Black. And white property owners signed these deeds and covenants to enforce segregation. Um, and they were, they were pretty popular. Wow. So 1916 through 1948, that's a long time. How, how did they work? Like, who wrote them? How were they enforced? Like, who, who was involved in this? You had real estate agents and associations that were involved in in writing them. I can um, pull up a covenant right here. So there was the Auburn Park Property Restriction Association, and they sent a letter to homeowners, you know, in a certain geographical part, you know, parcel numbers, and they emailed, uh, excuse me, emailed, (laughs) uh, they uh, sent this letter to homeowners within these boundaries and said, can you sign this? Um, Another way to explain this 
that people might be familiar with is through playwright Lorraine Hansberry. Her family moved to the West Woodlawn neighborhood in the early 1940s, and it was all white. And there was a homeowners association, and these were the groups that enforced and perpetuated these type of covenants. And they said, oh, you're not supposed to live here. You're black. And Carl Hansberry took this case to the Supreme Court. Yeah, and they won, didn't they? Yes. Now, they did not win because of you know, racial equality or anything like that. It was because not enough homeowners had signed <laughs> saying to keep black people out. And this was an inspiration for the play A Raisin in the Sun. But mm. it was traumatic for the Hansberries. Uh, her mother had to patrol the house with a gun. A brick was thrown into their home and nearly missed eight-year-old Lorraine. Um, but what happened after that Supreme Court is that those homes opened up to black people. And this is important for you know obvious reasons, but also there was so much overcrowding on the South Side. You had so many people who were moving here from the South and you had white neighbors and neighborhoods saying, we don't want them. But that also created overcrowded and slum conditions in the Black Belt at the time. So I understand that it's kind of difficult to find this information in, in the public record. Can you tell me about that and, and why that might be? So some of these records are kept in the dungeons of the Cook County <laughs> Clerk's Office, which used to be the recorder of deeds. Um, but you have to, there are a lot of steps. It's not like you can just get these open records easily. Um, you know, you have to find the 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 plot, the, the, the land. Um, and then look through a book and then another book. So it's, it's, it's a multi-layered step. And we do plan to do that. But we also wanted to crowdsource because we don't know what kind of stories we might find from people, um, how this can help influence the reporting, um, and also how this can contribute to public engagement. So let's talk about that. How, how can people help this project? So we, we are not asking people to go down to Cook County and, and do this kind of research. Um, if they want to, that's great. But what we're really asking for is for people to check their records or their family records for paperwork on the home. Again, if the home was built or sold between 1916 and 1948. And then if you find that deed or covenant, which you know, these are real estate documents that are about five to 10 pages. Look for language that talks about restrictions of who can buy or live in the home. And if you find that document, send us a digital copy. You can upload it via Google Docs. And if you go to wbez.org slash housing discrimination, all the instructions are there for you. All right. That's wbez.org slash housing discrimination. And can I add one more thing? Yep. Yeah, please do. The purpose of this project isn't to wag a finger at someone's family for signing these or being a part of it. We are really trying to reckon with our region's own racist housing history. And we want to collect as many as possible to show the geographic diversity of, of where they were. And I think this is part of a larger healing that we have to have in this region about segregation. Yeah, I, I think it could end up being pretty revealing. I mean, ha have you gotten any responses from people in Cook County yet? Yes, the day after the call out happened, we had people uploading and I've had people email me. I've had people call asking questions. I've had librarians send me info. So in a, in a short period, we, we've been able to engage with people. 
Well, that's great. Well, I hope you continue to get lots of good stuff. Me too. Thank you. That was Natalie Moore with an invitation to take part in WBEZ's investigation into racially restrictive deeds and covenants. If you live in a home that was built or sold between 1916 and 1948, there's a good chance there's a racial restriction somewhere in the paperwork. So maybe do a little digging. And if you find something, go to wbez.org slash housing discrimination to let us know. And that's our show. Curious City is produced by Joe Dassault and myself. Our multimedia producer is Maggie Sivet. Our editor is Alexandra Solomon. Monica Eng is our intrepid reporter. And our intern is Natalie Dahlia. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times, you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown.